Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are rolling through the book of First Peter and today's teaching is looking at chapter 3 and is entitled Peter and the Suffering of God. This series in First Peter has been an intimate look at the concept of faith. Now, faith is a word that we throw around that we don't often define, and often when we do define faith, it's usually the worst definition possible of what faith is. The worst definition of faith is that faith is one's capacity to believe unprovable things. This is a terrible definition of faith. Because by this definition, people who believe in a flat earth in 2019 are people of great faith. And, <laughs> and that's a little tough for me to swallow. So if you identify as a person of faith, it's important for you to define what faith is. For me, I define faith as this. Faith is what one trusts about the character of God. Now, if you are an atheist or agnostic listening to this podcast and I was speaking to you individually, I would say that faith is what one trusts about the character of the universe. But who do you trust that God is? That's ultimately the question of faith. In his first chapter, Peter talks about the earth and how the earth is a good place. Then Peter talks about humanity and urges us to be a holy people. And we talked about how holiness is ingrained in our humanity. And if holiness is ingrained in our humanity, then to exist as a human being is ultimately good. So we have these two building blocks of faith that the earth is a good place and to exist as a human being is good. And both of these building blocks ultimately point to a good creator that is worthy of worship. Now, if you've been listening the last two weeks, you may have heard me say the earth is a good place and human beings are good. And you may say, I can understand that. There's just one major problem. There is so much suffering on the planet and so many human beings who are cruel to each other that I cannot believe that the earth is a good place and that human beings are good. And if the earth is a bad place and human beings are evil, then what does that say about God? If you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard me reference my atheist friend, Tyler, who has told me that human suffering is the reason he cannot believe in a good God. And while I used to argue with him, I think it's important for every person of faith to acknowledge that human suffering is a daunting challenge to the goodness of God. We cannot trivialize or gloss over the pain that human beings feel and the suffering that we endure. And to claim that the earth is a good place and that human beings are good, one must consider and integrate an understanding or an attempt to explain why there is so much suffering. So this episode is about suffering and trying to understand it from a Christian perspective when we trust that God is good and that God's creation is ultimately good. We'll begin by reading the words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when Peter writes, Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, 
you are blessed. If you're like me, you read this passage and you say, blessed because I suffer. This is a rather unconventional idea about suffering. Most of the biblical writers talk about how when we suffer, we must repent because God's punishment is our suffering for sinning against God. Therefore, everyone who suffers deserves that suffering as the conventional theology would go. And then along comes Peter who looks at suffering and says, oh, when you suffer, you are blessed. How is it that Peter writes about suffering and tells us that when we suffer, we are blessed? I'd like to answer that question with 10 different words. And these 10 different words are suffering, why, awareness, grief, fear, include, gratitude, privilege, compassion, and blessing. I believe that if we look closely at these 10 different words, we can talk about why Peter writes that those who suffer are ultimately blessed. So let's begin with the first word, suffering. To talk about suffering, I'd like to tell you about my dad. Now, my dad has pet peeves, just like we all have pet peeves. But then there are those pet peeves that we possess that push us over the edge and become something of a borderline obsession or a neurotic tick. For my dad, this thing that's a little bit beyond a pet peeve is the idea of more stoplights. Anytime there's a stoplight that is going up somewhere in Redlands, my dad begins to panic because it will get in the way of his commute and slow him down and efficiency for my dad is the goal. And while stoplights in Redlands are a problem for my dad, the worst kind of stoplight for my dad is one that is in a random city called Adelano, California. Now, this is a major problem because Adelano is directly on the route between Redlands and Mammoth Lakes, which is where my family likes to vacation. And when we drive through Adelano, every time there's a new stoplight, my dad decompensates. He starts telling us about how this isn't the way it's supposed to be and these stoplights inconvenience him. And we always have to endure a lecture about when he used to drive to Mammoth from Redlands, he never encountered stoplights in Adelano. There was the good old days when there were no stoplights and he could drive straight through. I tell you this story to help us understand what suffering is because if you were to take a spectrum and rank the worst suffering a human being can endure at a 10 and the least amount of suffering a human can endure at a one, my dad and his stoplights in Adelano, California is like a 1.2. You with me? But at the same time, it's important for us to acknowledge that that is suffering. And the reason it is suffering is because suffering is what happens when we don't get our way. Whenever you experience something that you would not choose to experience, you are suffering on some level. Whenever any of us stop at a stoplight and it's red and we let other people go in front of us, we are ultimately suffering in a minute way. Suffering is when we don't get our way. If my dad was in charge of California, which he's not, there would be no stoplights in Adelano, California. But because there's people who live in Adelano, California and don't want people driving through really fast on their way to Mammoth, they put stoplights in and my dad has to suffer and wait 
to protect the safety of Adelano, California. Suffering occurs whenever something happens against our will. From suffering, we move to the word why. Now, whenever we suffer, human beings ask the question why. Now, I have heard spiritual teachers talk about how why in the face of suffering is a fruitless journey. I strongly disagree with this, and here is why. When we are suffering, we may ask the question, why am I feeling so much pain right now? And if you ask that question and you look around you and you realize that your hand is on a red hot stove, you would say, oh, it's because my hand's on a red hot stove. And you would then remove your hand from the red hot stove. Have you ever eaten a bunch of junk food and then felt terrible the next day? Yes, you probably have. And then you ask yourself why, and you said, wow, I ate 14 Twinkies yesterday. Maybe I should change my diet. So then you change your diet because you ask the question why, and you eat something healthy, and the next day you feel fantastic, and you say, oh, maybe I should eat better food to feel better about myself. So the reason we ask the question why, and it's a very human question, is that we ask why to discern whether our suffering is preventable. So the question why is very helpful because there's times that we can learn about how we can prevent suffering in the future and avoid pain down the road. But why also helps us to label the other type of suffering, which we will call unpreventable suffering. The suffering that doesn't have an easy answer. The suffering that leaves us wounded. The suffering that is difficult to carry. So whenever you suffer and you ask the question why, understand that that's a very human question and a necessary question. But also there's a point where you should stop asking that question once you've arrived at the fact that you are suffering in an unpreventable fashion. From the question why then we move to the third word, which is awareness. Now to talk about awareness, I wanna talk about the Rolling Stones who in 1965 wrote their biggest hit, the song Satisfaction. This song was insanely popular. It was all over the radio. People could sing the lyrics by memory. It was an iconic song for a generation. And it was written by a 21-year-old named Mick Jagger. Now, after singing this song on the road and on tour for 10 years straight, at the age of 31 in 1975, Mick Jagger told People Magazine these words, I'd rather be dead than sing Satisfaction when I'm 45. Dead! <laughs> now, this is an interesting quote because I watched Super Bowl 40, which took place in 2006, and there on the stage was Mick Jagger at age 63, which is 18 years past the age of 45. And he introduces his next song, the third song they sang for the Super Bowl halftime show by saying, this next song we could have done at Super Bowl one. And then they started playing Satisfaction. Now I tell you this story because Mick Jagger in 1975, when he's talking to People Magazine and saying he'd rather be dead than playing Satisfaction, it is in that moment that he lacked non-dual awareness. 
Now, non-dual awareness is a big theological term, but let me try and break it down for you. Non-dual awareness is a comprehensive understanding of the totality of a reality. So in other words, it's what comes with the territory. So if we look at Mick Jagger and the song Satisfaction, non-dual awareness tells us that if you want to write a song that is truly iconic to a generation, then you are going to be singing that song for the rest of your life. It's what comes with the territory. C.S. Lewis wrote about non-dual awareness in his book on suffering called The Problem with Pain. He writes, the permanent nature of lumber, which enables us to use it as a beam, also enables us to use lumber for hitting our neighbor on the head. C.S. Lewis tells us that he cannot imagine a world where we can build structures out of timber and then not use that same timber to fashion into weapons that hurt other people. This is non-dual awareness. The contemporary artist Harmonia Rosales does some amazing work where she takes the masterpieces of Western art and replaces their white male figures with black female subjects. And so she's reworked Michelangelo's creation of Adam, the birth of Venus. She does all of these famous pieces of art and replaces the subjects with black women. As you can imagine, Harmonia Rosales gets a fair amount of criticism for doing this. And so an interviewer asked Harmonia Rosales how she deals with the criticism in March of this year. And Harmonia Rosales cited her mother by saying these words, my mother told me that's what's going to make you an artist, the controversy. In other words, Harmonia Rosales' mother understands the non-dual awareness of inspiration behind art. If you want to inspire others, you are also going to be criticized. And when you experience the fullness of that balance, then you are an artist. Non-dual awareness is a comprehensive understanding of the totality of a reality. So from awareness, then we move to grief. One of the greatest pieces of art in human history is Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. This fresco captures the moment when Jesus tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. Everyone knows this painting and people travel from all over the globe to come and see this painting because it is a marvel. But if you go and visit, Chances are you will be shocked because it is very different than how most people see it in pictures or online. In fact, when you go into the room to see the Last Supper, you look at it closely and you say, why is there a door carved into the Last Supper? And where you'd expect to see the feet of Jesus, there's this door that has eliminated where Leonardo da Vinci painted the feet of Jesus. And if you're like me, you see this door and you think to yourself, I cannot imagine in my rational mind cutting into and destroying Leonardo da Vinci's work for a door and thinking to myself, eh, this is okay. But a human being actually did this because on the other side of the door, on the other side of the Last Supper wall is the kitchen. 
And where the Last Supper is, is the dining hall. And somebody was tired of walking around the Last Supper, so they carved a door and destroyed a portion of this mural. And they thought to themselves, man, it sure is nice to save a few steps. How can a human being rationally destroy this work of art and think, oh, it's okay. And the only way anyone can carve a door into the Last Supper is if someone does not love the Last Supper at all. If they look at the Last Supper and say, I mean, it's good, but there's lots of paintings like it. It's only at that moment that a rational human being can say, it's okay if we take a little piece out of this. It's still, we still got the spirit of the painting here. It's totally fine. You can still see Jesus's face. The only way you can carve a door into the Last Supper is if you do not love the Last Supper at all. Now, why do I tell you this story? It's because when we talk about grief, grief is often vastly misunderstood, especially by Christians. We've often been told that our grief is a sign of weakness of our faith. And that true people of faith are able to attend funerals and smile and say things like, well, I just know I'm going to see him again soon because God is coming back soon. And people look at that person and say, that is a person of great faith. But that's not what grief is. Whenever we grieve at a funeral, it's because we love the person who is deceased. And the only way to avoid crying at a funeral is if you don't love the person who we are memorializing at a funeral. The non-dual awareness of grief and suffering is that we grieve because we love. And the reason that so many funerals are so hard to go to is because we love the person who we are remembering. And anytime we open ourselves to love another human being, the non-dual awareness of that opening toward love is that we are also opening ourselves to experience pain or suffering. When we grieve, it's because we love. And what's really heartbreaking is when I've heard Christians talk about the last judgment and the separation between the righteous and the wicked. And people start asking questions about like, well, what if I love someone who doesn't make it into heaven? Christians respond by saying, well, don't worry because God will wipe away every tear. And what Christians are ultimately saying when they say that God will wipe away every tear is that God will wipe away your love for the person you have lost. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of what grief is. If you personally have experienced an immense amount of grief in your life lately, it's only because you have loved with reckless abandon. And whenever you open yourself to love, you are opening yourself to pain. But the Christian message is this. It is always worth it to be open to love. From grief, we move to the fifth word, which is fear. The greatest skier of all time is Lindsey Vaughn. 
And whenever I watched Lindsey Vonn's ski, I have to tell you, my hands would start to sweat because she would be going so fast, it would make me nervous watching on a TV in the comfort of my own home. To talk about fear, she was interviewed by 60 Minutes in January of 2017, and she said these words, fear is not part of the equation for me. I don't think about fear. I, of course, weigh the risk of doing certain things, but I don't fear what I'm doing. What Lindsey Vaughn is telling us is that it's possible to race on skis at 90 miles per hour without fear. Now, I have a hard time believing this because I enjoy skiing myself. That being said, the fastest I've ever skied is somewhere between 45 and 50 miles an hour. And at 45 miles an hour, I will tell you I am screaming, panicking, freaking out because I think I'm about to die and lose all of my limbs. <laughs> I have no idea how Lindsey Vaughn goes twice as fast as that and doesn't feel any fear. And while there's a lot that separates me from Lindsey Vaughn, like discipline and strength and the ability to eat nutritious meals every day, perhaps the biggest gap between me and Lindsey Vaughn is the fact that I feel fear on skis that she doesn't even think about. The very fact that Lindsey Vaughn doesn't feel fear at 90 miles per hour is what makes her a downhill racer. In my doctoral program, I am studying under a man named Dr. Leonard Sweet. And in his book, So Beautiful, he talks about this concept by discussing explorers. He writes, the very definition of an explorer is someone who is not afraid of being lost. I believe that a Jesus follower understands this as well. Because the very definition of a Jesus follower is someone who loves without fear of suffering. They possess a non-dual awareness of what love entails. That anytime we open ourselves to love, we open ourselves to suffer. But rather than saying, is it worth the risk or should we love because it seems more logical to not love, a Jesus follower goes in without abandon because they do not fear suffering. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus followers don't suffer. In fact, they suffer more because they love more. But the difference is they don't fear suffering because they ultimately understand that to love will eventually lead us to suffer. From the fifth word of fear, we move to the sixth word, which is include. All the way back in 2007, Prince was slated to perform at the Super Bowl halftime show in Miami, Florida. And on the morning of the Super Bowl, a producer woke up and was shocked to look out his hotel window and find buckets of rain coming down from the heavens. This was not a polite Southern Californian rain. This was a rude and interrupting Miami torrential downpour that made you question why on earth anyone would be outside at the moment. So this producer became very nervous because they didn't know what they were going to do about the halftime show. After all, it was hard enough to stand up. How are you supposed to play guitar and sing in the midst of all this falling water? So the producer calls Prince and he gets him on the line and he says, Prince, I don't know, is that how you address Prince? I'm not, not really sure actually, but let's just go with it. So he says, Prince, 
It's raining outside. And Prince says, yes, it is raining. And the producer nervously asks, like, do you still want to perform? I mean, it's going to be very difficult to be out there and put on a show. And the producer tells us there was a pause on the line. And then Prince asked him a question. Can you make it rain harder? Whoa, that might be the greatest question in the history of rock and roll. And if you've seen that show, you know it was something special because that rain, I mean, Prince just owned it to the point where it felt like it was an effect that he ordered. Not only that, but it helps when Prince's biggest hit is the song Purple Rain. I mean, just so many iconic photos were taken of Prince during that halftime show because he owned the rain and brought it into his show. And I would argue that the greatest Super Bowl halftime show of all time was Prince's because he included the rain. In 2017, the Philadelphia Eagles were a force to be reckoned with in the National Football League. They were winning games by wide margins led by a very staunch defense and their star quarterback, Carson Wentz. Toward the end of the 2017 season, in a game in Los Angeles, Carson Wentz blew out his knee and was out for the rest of the season. At that point, the radio hosts started talking, saying things like, it's too bad the Philadelphia Eagles really had the look of a contender. There's no way they're going to make it with their backup quarterback. Everyone counted out the Eagles, including Las Vegas. And when the Eagles opened their first playoff game, even though they had a better record, they were underdogs at home to the wild card and lowly Atlanta Falcons. Nobody believed in the Philadelphia Eagles, except the Philadelphia Eagles, who as soon as they beat the Atlanta Falcons, even though they weren't favorites, they took off their helmets and put on dog masks to let everyone know the disrespect that had been served to them as being underdogs on their own home field. They did the same thing the next week when they played the Minnesota Vikings where they were underdogs once again. They trounced the Vikings. And as soon as the game was over, they put on their dog masks again. They saw the disrespect and brought it into their story. When they won the Super Bowl against the Patriots, which is always a good day, the jeweler carved the icon of the dog into their Super Bowl rings. And the Philadelphia Eagles posted a picture of this Super Bowl ring with a dog on the inside, and it said, underdogs no more. The Eagles included the underdog narrative in their story. Which brings us to a third story about include, and this revolves around comedian Ali Wong. Thanks to her two Netflix comedy specials, Baby Cobra and Hard Knock Wife, Ali Wong is one of the most successful comedians today. Which is what makes her book that recently came out so puzzling. Because in this book, she highlights a rather discouraging story. This story takes place when she was still a struggling comedian before her Netflix specials in a tiny comedy club in San Francisco. She remembers that she was going to be trying some new things, some new material, when she looked out into the audience and saw the comedy legend, Eddie Murphy. Now, Ali Wong in her book writes that the reason she wanted to get into comedy was because of Eddie Murphy. 
So she changed her material right before her set began to her best stuff. After all, she wanted to get Eddie Murphy to laugh, so she was going to bring her best material and see if she could get him to think that she was funny. So she went out on stage and began to do her work. And throughout the entire 10-minute set, Eddie Murphy was silent. He didn't laugh once. Now, in this book that she is writing to her two girls, Ali Wong includes this story, and she wraps up the story by saying, Girls, nobody is great at stand-up comedy right away, and it's important to have room to experiment, find your voice, and most important, to fail. Now, this is a rather counterintuitive idea. In order to be great, she says, you have to fail. Because it's only in failure that you learn that you aren't great yet and you keep working to be better. When I look at these three different stories of Prince and the Philadelphia Eagles and Ali Wong, they teach me that the most inspiring stories are when human beings include suffering in their narrative. While everything inside of us wants to exclude suffering or not talk about suffering or try and transcend suffering and tell our story with all the times that we killed it and got it right, those stories are rarely, if ever, inspiring. From include, we move to the seventh word, which is gratitude. When I was doing my master's at La Sierra University, I studied under the incomparable Dr. Fritz Guy. Now, Dr. Guy once told me in a directed study that the greatest indicator of spiritual maturity is gratitude. Oh man, the moment he said those words, I remember saying to him, are you sure you want to say that? Because if you do, it is inspiring to me. And he said to me, yes, that is what I want to say. The greatest indicator of spiritual maturity is gratitude. When I first heard those words back in 2011, I wasn't really ready to grapple with the depth and complexity of what the implications of those words were. That all changed in August of this year when Stephen Colbert was being interviewed by Anderson Cooper and they started talking about grief. And in this conversation of grief, Stephen Colbert started telling a story about how his dad and his two brothers died in a plane crash when Stephen was just 10 years old. Now, there is a lot of conversation back and forth, but one of the main questions that Anderson Cooper asked him in response to that story is, how did you get through this? And Stephen Colbert told stories about how he grieved a lot, about how he became detached. He even talked about how there's two halves to his life before the plane crash and after the plane crash because this moment more than any other defined who he was. Stephen Colbert then said, I have learned to love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Anderson Cooper then responded with tears in his eyes, do you really believe that to be true? And Stephen Colbert said, yes, because it's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. 
If you are grateful for your life, he said, then you have to be grateful for all of it. What do you get from loss? You get an awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with another person and allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being. So while we Christians love to put things into categories, the good and the bad, and thank God for what is good and then ask God for deliverance or less disappointments from the bad, the much healthier way to look at life is to be able to draw a circle around the whole thing and declare that it is somehow sacred, somehow holy, somehow mysterious in all of its tragedies and triumphs, and then to look at all of it and respond with gratitude. Spiritual maturity is gratitude for the entirety of our existence. And this takes time, patience, and diligence to be able to see life this way. From gratitude, we move to the eighth word, which is privilege. Now, I understand that when a white, straight male stands up and says, you need to be grateful for your life, there are all kinds of trauma that are brought up within people of color, within women, and within queer people. Not only that, but someone could look at the fact that I am working on my doctoral degree, I have come from an affluent family, and that I have been able to hold a steady job for years and say, don't speak to me about gratitude. So when I speak about gratitude in connection to suffering, I have to speak about privilege. Because there are certain privileges that I have, unearned or earned, that prevent me from feeling suffering that other people have to endure on a daily basis. To talk about privilege and gratitude, I'd like to read from Austin Channing Brown's fantastic book, I'm Still Here, which came out in 2018. In this book, she writes, white people often want me to be grateful for America's so-called racial progress, but I cannot. Don't get me wrong, I am eternally grateful to my ancestors who carried the unbearable weight of slavery. I am grateful for those who lived and loved and worked and played before there was any talk of a national movement to secure equal civil rights. I am grateful for my great, great, great grandfather who escaped slavery to join the Union Army. I am grateful for my great, great grandmother who refused to ride in the back of the train when traveling to visit her sister in Arkansas. I am grateful for my ancestors' struggle and their survival, but I am not impressed with America's progress. I am not impressed that slavery was abolished or that Jim Crow ended. I feel no need to pat America on its back for these achievements. This is how it always should have been. When Austin Channing Brown writes about gratitude, she writes of the gratitude she feels for her ancestors and the suffering they endured. Now, in her book, Brown connects a lot of the suffering that African Americans face today to decisions that were laid and the society that was built during slavery and the Jim Crow era. 
Now, what happens when people of privilege come along and they hear about the current plight of African Americans, they often try to deny or fight against what African Americans are telling them is actually happening. This is what's so important for us to understand about privilege. Privilege often blinds us to another suffering, which then leads us to deny, challenge, and refute the experience of the underprivileged. And to speak directly to my white brothers and sisters for just a few moments, it's really important for us to stop denying what racial minorities are telling us is the American experience and American history for people of color. Now, if we can move from denying the experience of racism that people of color tell us is happening in America today, and we can find a way to lament the racism that is happening today, that is when something holy begins to happen. And the holy thing that happens is the ninth word, which is compassion. Now, compassion is derived from the Latin word compassio, and the literal translation of the Latin word compassio is this, to suffer alongside. So when Christians deny racism, they are refusing to suffer alongside those who are suffering from racism. But when we lament alongside those who are suffering from racism and then act to do something about it, we are practicing compassion. And compassion is one of the hallmarks of the Jesus story. Christians profess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the incarnation of the infinite, the all-powerful in a localized form. And when you look closely at the life of Jesus, you find that Jesus constantly opens himself to love and also constantly experiences suffering, just like every human being on the planet. And when you read the gospel, you realize that the gospel is God's compassionate song of solidarity. After all, have you ever felt like society doesn't care about you because you are poor? Well, Jesus felt that too. Have you ever felt disappointment when people assume the worst about you? Jesus felt that too. Have you ever felt like the legal system is rigged against you? Jesus felt that too. Have you ever felt underprivileged in a society that is built by and for the privileged? Jesus felt that too. Have you ever prayed with everything that you've had inside of you and are convinced that God doesn't hear your prayers? Jesus felt that too. Have you ever felt the sting of rejection by your own family? Jesus felt that too. Have you ever felt bitter tears rolling down your cheek as you have buried a loved one? Jesus felt those tears too. The gospel is God's tangible action of complete compassion. And anytime we suffer alongside anyone who is in pain, 
or we allow someone to suffer alongside us as we are in pain. It is in that moment that Jesus Christ suffers alongside us in solidarity. The gospel tells us that if you are having a hard time believing that God is real, then enter with reckless abandon into compassion. And in those moments of suffering alongside, you will find the presence of God. Which brings us to the last word of our 10 words about suffering. And that word is blessing. I started this podcast by talking about my friend Tyler's objections to a good God because of suffering. And how we have to acknowledge that human suffering is a daunting challenge to the goodness of God. Now, Tyler and I started talking about this all the way back in 2004. So I've been wrestling with these ideas for 15 years. And what I've learned in 15 years of looking at the concept of suffering and trying to understand God in the midst of all of the pain that we share and feel for ourselves is that I have received very few answers as to why we suffer. But when I look closely at the life of Jesus, I realize that Jesus doesn't really seem concerned with the answers for why we suffer. Rather, what the life of Jesus teaches us is that God is in the midst of our suffering and suffers alongside us. So rather than trying to answer big theological debates, what the story and life of Jesus tells us is how to live in the midst of so much suffering. And so when someone asks me today, how is it that God can allow us to suffer so much, I would respond by saying, I don't know. But Christianity provides us a way forward and asks us to be compassionate in the face of human suffering. I return over and over again to the story of Jesus in an effort to become more compassionate not to get better theological answers. And it's when I am more compassionate that I read Peter's words where he has that unconventional idea of suffering where he says, even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. I believe the blessing that Peter is talking about is compassion. And so when it comes to suffering, I have not found that the way of Jesus provides a lot of answers for why we suffer in unpreventable ways. But what I have found is that the way of Jesus teaches us how to receive compassion in our own suffering. Not only that, but the way of Jesus teaches us how to embrace others who are suffering with compassion. May we give and receive the compassion of our Creator. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.